We're going to be continuing on, um, finishing off the chapter the next probably a month and a half. But this morning and next week we hope to unpack verses 1 and 2, which read, Let all who are under a yoke as a bond servant regard their own masters as worthy of all honour. So the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be destructful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now for many of us, whenever we come to this terminology of bond uh, servants or slaves, depending on your translation... That term there, a yoke as a bond servant, is the Greek word doulos. And it is throughout the New, Te- the New Testament, particularly within the context of Scripture, this term bond servant or slave or doulos is in the Scripture some 120 times. It normally has a positive context. We all know from the Apostles' writings that you could turn to, for example, Romans 1 verse 1 where the Apostle Paul calls himself a servant of Christ or a slave of Christ it is the same word doulos it's the same for James chapter 1 verse 1 where James himself calls himself again a doulos of Christ Peter uses the same terminology a doulos of Christ in 1 Peter 2 16 and again we would see it in Jude 1 verse 1 to name but a few So many of us understand that we have one Lord, one Master. We are all slaves of Christ. We have been purchased. We have been bought. We are the property of Christ. And for many of us, we need to get our mindset into that thinking, into that understanding of this portion of Scripture. Because for us, in our context, slaves is very much a negative thing. When we think of slaves, many of us may think of the slaves in the sex Industry who are being human trafficking is one version of slaves we may think of. Maybe a more prevailing version of slavery, you would immediately think of slavery being abolished, particularly in America, where you think of black individuals chained in rags, picking cotton, that they were oppressed, beaten, they were stopped from having voting, voting. They were seen, not only in America and throughout history, that slaves was very much a thing that you did not want to be. The idea that someone could own you or own your family or own your children was very much the negative. But for us, when we come to understand this portion of Scripture, we need to set aside that imagery and we need to be able to paint a new picture to be able to understand, one, why it's here for Timothy, and two, why, as it is part of Scripture, God's Word breathed, it is rich for us in teaching and practical application. For many of us, as I said, you could read this and very quickly run over it and go, praise the Lord that we no longer live in times and seasons and ages where there is slaves and and in a context where we need to apply this portion of Scripture. But hopefully, as we unpack it, as I said, this week and probably in through next week, we can better understand its meaning. So I'll read it to you again. Let all who are under a yoke... As a bond servant. Now ESV has bond servant. As I said this is this word we need to grapple with and grip. Which is doulos. In other words those who are underneath a yoke. And this yoke is not again a negative yoke. It is simply saying that you are underneath the control. You are underneath the ownership of a master. 
You're underneath somebody who is a slave owner. Again, for us in our context, we would put that into the fact that we are no longer underneath the yoke of the law, which was about works, but we're now underneath the yoke of grace. We are indeed Christ's slaves. We are slaves to the Gospels, and we can echo that as I read, or as I mentioned, sorry, as do the Apostles. And he says, those who are underneath this yoke regard their own masters worthy of all honour. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So here there is the context of if you are a slave, if you are underneath the burden and the yoke and the authority, would be a better word, of one who is in authority over you, you are to conduct yourself in a way that is in keeping with the full teaching of Scripture as not to cause the one who is your master to be able to have a question against the gospel or to be able to have a motive against the gospel. In other words, all your actions and your deeds are to reflect honour to your master so that you can bring glory to the gospel. But first of all, as I said, we need to understand, is slavery, particularly in any context, a biblical model? I believe it is. I believe that God instilled slavery that we're going to unpack for positive influences and for just reasons. Now I want to turn to the first slave that we find in the scripture. You can find it in the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis, if you will, chapter 2, verse 15. Now again, whenever we think of the word slave, we need to re-educate ourselves. We need to re paint a new image in our minds and I think that the best place to start here as I said is the first slave that we read of throughout the entirety of Holy Scripture Genesis 2 verse 15 and it reads the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it who owns man at this stage God Almighty who created man at this stage God Almighty. Who is this man's master? God Almighty. Whose possession is this man? God Almighty. So what does God do with the man? He takes the man and he puts him in the garden to work it and keep it. The whole purpose of the creation of man, and this is something that we can spend weeks on as well, if we want to look at what work is and how we have all come underneath the pagan influence of the imagery and the notion of retirement, when throughout scripture we see work as being a blessing. Work was not a cause of the fall, work was here before the fall. We could go right throughout the entirety of the beginnings and the creation of uh, the heavens and the earth and mankind and continually you're seeing who working God. God worked, God labored, God worked, he created. God is the instigator of work and work is an important part of each individual's life. So many of us buy into the fact if I could just retire at a certain age, then I would be great, it would be wonderful. Speak to many individuals who do, who win the lottery or whatever it may be, without a purpose, without a labor, without a work to keep them grounded and focused, they find themselves languishing and sometimes lose hope. For many of us, we may say, not a chance. I keep my work. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Percentage-wise in the UK, we, I was looking at it this week, UK people, one-third of people in the UK don't like their work, two-thirds do. 
For many different countries in the world, that's not the case. It would be a lot higher. Maybe we just have a stiffer upper lip and we don't want to state the fact that we don't like our jobs because after all, that's not becoming. And that all of us have to say that we love our work and that we love the places that we find ourselves. And hopefully, as we progress through this, we're going to see the similarity between work and between being a slave. And how today it may be better uh, interpreted that the slaves are those who are workers and the masters are those who are in authority. But we'll get to that. So here we have the Lord God. He took the man, he put it in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. And here we have the authority. We have who is the master and who is the servant. Who is God and who is man. Who is creator and who is creature. This is pointing to the fact that here we have Adam as an enslavement not only to work and to toil in the garden for God's ultimate glory and man's ultimate purpose. This is before the fall. But we also have commandments. You are to adhere to my rule and to my law. And there is rewards for that. As he says in verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat, you shall surely die. You are my possession, you are my property, and you have to adhere to my commandments. It's one of the things we looked at a number of weeks ago in midweek where we talked about the kingdom and how we wish for the kingdom to come. But we know that there is only going to be one master, one person in authority in the kingdom, and that is Christ Jesus within the Godhead and the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There will be no more turning, no more rebelling, no more going against against God's laws there will be absolute perfect obedience to every single person who was born and raised again and given full new natures and new inclinations that is completely without sin and ultimately holy we will rejoice to come underneath the bond underneath the enslavement of our creator we will rejoice to come underneath his commandments and we rejoice to live forever and ever in and as his ultimate possession. Amen? Is that not what we're longing for? And as we looked at it, for us to understand that in our fallen sinful state, when we think of the kingdom, it is better not to think of the monarchies that we think of now, but to think of regimes like North Korea. There will be no oppression as there is in North Korea, but there will be one absolute governing deity, which is Christ as part of the Trinity, God himself. Now, so that being said, we can see the instilling here of the servant model. I want us to look at that and build on that a little bit more if you turn to Exodus. And again, this morning we're not going to be able to build fully on the picture of slave and master. But hopefully we can get a taste and paint a new picture which is a biblical one. Exodus 21 verse 1. Here God is giving laws about slaves. And it reads, <clears throat> verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free. So the understanding for us, and we're going to get to it, especially when we go to the Gospel of Luke, is that there were day servants and there were slaves. So in this context of this time, whenever you were to purchase a slave or to hire a slave, that slave was only to work for you, toil for you, serve for you for seven years. Seven ultimately being the time of completion. And if they then wanted to, they could remain for that master as a slave 
again for another seven years. But in no shape or form were they to be held for life. After seven years, they could go out freely. It didn't matter how much they were purchased for. It didn't matter how, what it cost. After seven years, they were free. And again, to build in this picture for us today, we see this imagery of bond slave even within the pagan world. Look at any professional athlete. They sign a two-year contract, a three-year contract, a seven-year contract. And every single thing that is their labor and is their work is owned by that governing body. I watched a bit of the NFL. For example, in the NFL draft, a lot of players sign a three, a four, a five-year contract. And that means that if they want to play football for any other team, they can't. If they want to leave outside of that contract, which is within that, that four or five year period, they can, but they won't receive any remuneration. They won't receive any money for it. So the imagery here that we're hopefully going to see is the slave model transitions for us today into the working model. Many people, whenever they sign a contract for a large organization, will have in that contract a non-compete clause. And again, it is the slave model where you are working for a master who has authority over everything that you can do, even to the point that if you quit, you wouldn't be able to start the same business and do the same job and labor in the same industry because you've signed a non-compete. And on it goes. But we'll unpack that a little bit. So here we see God setting forth that servants and slaves had to be treated not in the way that Man in his fallen state took slaves and servants and oppressed them and beat them and put them underneath all kinds of yokes of slavery that was not God's dealing with. So he says after seven years they can go free. Verse 3, if he has come in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then he, his wife, shall go out with them. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters and he shall not go out Alone, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door, the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awe and he shall be his slave forever. That doesn't sound good. Well, actually it is. Because that's understand what it's saying there. This was designed for the protection, not just of the slave, but of the master. Where if a slave had come and said, I'm the master and I hire Finley. And Finley comes in and Finley takes Hannah to be his wife. And Finley has finished his seven years. But Hannah is only under her two years. All of a sudden he's taking out from the midst of my workforce people that haven't finished their contract. So what they're saying there is that yes, Finley can go free. But if he's married Hannah, for example, she can't go with him and all the children. Because they're still underneath the seven year contract. He's also saying there that if he is married, he's able to take his wife and kids as well. There's no ownership outside of the seven years. So it was a way to be able to protect the industry, to be able to protect the person's livelihood without having one person come in and taking a number of individuals with him and decimating the workforce. That's what's there. The last part, why is that there? This again is showing and highlighting the fact that this is not meant to be an oppressive situation. It's a working situation. We're going to get to it whenever, whenever you were a slave and not a day servant. As a slave, your master had to feed you with the best of food, clothe you with the best of clothes, house you in acceptable good housing, and clothe and feed your wife, clothe and feed your children, and also pay you. 
If you were a day servant, you sat around all day and you were paid whatever the master wanted to pay you. He wasn't in charge of your clothes. He wasn't in charge of your wife. He wasn't in charge of your kids. Most people on day wages got paid between a half a denarii and one denarii. Is that a lot? No, it's not. A servant would have got his clothes, his food, his keep for his wife and his kids and an additional 60 denarii a day or a year, sorry, to spend as well. Roughly taken for a person if they worked and they got paid a full denarii and they worked six days a week. After your lodging and your food and everything else that you would have had to have paid for outside of your wife and kids, you would have been left with roughly 15 denarii. So that's why a lot of the day workers were ragged and had very little food for their families. And to be a servant was actually to be part of the family. And here we have somebody who says, I love my master. I love working for them. And I want for everyone to know that I belong to him. And that mark was meant to show the grace and the ability of that master to pay the Jews that was due to that servant. In fact, even in Jesus' time, there was a saying amongst the, amongst the Jews, to take a Jewish slave is to take a master. Because they had to be treated in such a perfect way according to God's word. And for many people, they didn't want to take Jews as slaves because, or as servants because of the high calling that God commanded to be paid for them. And we see this even as we continue. We'll jump down a little bit to verse 12. Where it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. If you have a servant, if you have someone working for you and you strike them or you hit them and they die, you're put to death. There is no physical oppression upon the servants or the slaves according to God. He goes on to say, verse 13, but if he, uh, but if he, did, but if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which you may flee. So in other words, if it was something that, that happened at that moment, it was, it, was, it was a heat of the moment, that he's been given a place for that person to flee. He won't be put to death, but he'll lose all his property and all his possessions, but he can keep his life. Then he goes on to say, but... Um, let me hear it. Verse 14. But if a man willingly attacks another to kill him by cunning, and you shall, and you shall take, from him, or take him from my altar, that he may die. And then it goes on to talk about whoever strikes his mother and father and other things. But jump down to verse 20 for me. And it says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he shall not be avenged, for the slave is his money. Then this, this, the, this, the strive together and to hit a pregnant woman, he goes into that. So again, talking about here, if a slave does something that deserved a punishment underneath Jewish law, which was the strikes, whether it be 40 lashes minus one, and for some reason it wasn't done maliciously, but the infection or whatever else that came through, and he died, then it wouldn't be the issue. But if he strikes him deliberately and kills him, under oppression and outside of the law, he is to be taken from him and he is to be killed. Verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. In other words, if there is domestic violence within the context of the workforce, if the master or the boss is hitting and causing injury, the seven-year contract is void. You do not have to be a slave for a master who's not treating you in the proper way. 
And he goes on, verse 27 says, If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go and, and free because of his tooth. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and his flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not been warned, but has not but has been warned has not kept it in and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and the owner also shall be put to death. In other words, if you've got animals on your farm and you hire a slave for your family and you know that that bull has killed in the past or was gored in the past and it gores one of the slaves who's maybe new to the farm, you're put to death. There is no room in the slave model or the employment model that God has set forth that is any shape and form seen to be the way slavery is today. The slaves were meant to be treated as workers, good workers who deserve their wages and the masters were therefore liable. And it goes on and we could look at more and more of it. But I want to just turn briefly if we could to Luke 17. Turn with me to Luke 17 verse 7. here it's, it's subheaded unworthy servants and it's Christ talking about servants Luke 17 verse 7 that reads will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping say to him when he has come in from the field come at once and recline at the table will he not rather say to him prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink does he, think the ser- does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And here Jesus is painting the, the biblical model that was put forth right from the garden of how all of us, in the context of this passage, be servants of Christ. We should not think that we deserve a reward whenever we're simply doing what we're commanded to do. It's the same context here. No one who works uh, here in this church or listening online, whenever you finish your day's work, your eight hours or whatever it is, that your boss then comes up and goes, thank you, I just appreciate all the work that you did. Why would he? He's thanking you because he is paying you to do the job. And in fact, what, what, he, what Christ is saying here is that when you're doing your job, you're meant to have the mindset of we're unworthy servants because we're only doing what was our duty to do. And this is the narrative that Paul's trying to build to Timothy. That the idea of servants for us today is the labouring workforce. And the masters are those who are the employers. And we see this again if we turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, again, that word that we talked about, doulos, obey your earthly masters. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So here again, we're putting, he's painting this picture here to the church at Ephesus through this, that 
those who are in the workplace or those who are servants are meant to fear their masters the same way that they fear Christ. You're meant to serve, whether it be in the workforce, as you would serve in the spiritual realm to your master who is Christ. And why? Because it says, One servant, obey your, your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you word Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with, service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality within. Again, painting the picture here, whether you're a bondservant or whether you're free, you're meant to work as you're working on to the Lord. You're meant to have an attitude that reflects that you are a born-again Christian. You're meant to do all these things because you have the knowledge and understanding that you should be laboring as if you're laboring onto Christ himself. Finally, Titus chapter 2. Verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, younger, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respect to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opportunity may not be put to shame. Have nothing evil to say about, about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in every way. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in every with everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Saviour. In other words, those who are slaves, or those who are employed, are meant to be the best workers that there is within the workplace. Why? For the same reason that Paul charges Timothy with back to chapter 6 verse 1 let all who are under the yoke as a bondservant let's replace that as we understand any employment you are enslaved at the minute to your employer you are his property so to speak within the workforce anything that happens within the context of you he is liable if you go into work tomorrow and you do something that causes massive disruption outside of the workplace or you cause something to happen within the workplace it's not you who is liable and have to pay for it it is your employer so in other words you are his so again so what we read there is let all who are under a yoke as a bond servant or those who are employees regard their own masters employers as worthy of all honour why? He says why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So in other words, if you're an employee and your 10 o'clock tea break is from 10 to 10.15, but you're sitting listening to Mal Baptist Sermon Online and you're loving it and all of a sudden it's half past and you wouldn't go, hey, yo, hold on, yo, I was with the Lord. You should be the person who is the first in work. 
the last to leave. You should be the one who serves humbly like Christ serves. You should be the one that has fear and trembling every time you go into the workplace to ask yourself the question, am I today going to be the true representation for somebody who is humble, for somebody who is not argumentative, for somebody who is submissive, for somebody who longs for my employer or my fellow employees to come to faith? Am I the person that whenever an employee is going to go and hire somebody, they say, I want a Christian because they are going to be the ones that are trustworthy, steadfast servants. They're going to be the ones who are going to want to do all things for the sake of me because they're doing it as if it's on to Christ. We all have to ask ourselves that when we go into our workplace tomorrow. Are we the ones that set the tone? Are we the ones that set the example? Are we the ones that set the speech? Are we the ones that whenever the employer has something that is massively important to do, that he can turn to me or to you or to whoever and say, I'm picking them because they are a Christian and I know their ethics, I know their morality, and I know their character. And their character is that of Christ. That's what we're called to be according to this that he's charging to Timothy. Charge this. So if the gospel is spreading... That those who are servants are those who are Christian employees and they work for Christian employers. Can't just skip the chain of command and just go to him because he's a brother in Christ or because he's a fellow brother in the church. And go, hey, I'm not happy with this. And then every other person who is a lost pagan looks at it and hates you for it. It's not fair that he can go to him and I can't go to him. It's also not fair for the employee to put the employer into that state where they have to then treat you differently. If anything, you should be the example for everybody else to see. You should be the one that shouldn't get away with anything. You should be the one that's there late. You're the one that locks up, closes up, opens up. You're the one that cleans up the canteen. You're the one that does it all. Why? Because you're doing it as if you're doing it unto Christ. For the sake of your gospel witness. For the sake of being truly a bond servant, a slave, an employee that one would want to have. Yes? It's also true as we read in chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 2. That's what it is for the employee. Now he talks about the employer. We're not going to finish it, but we'll have a brief look at it. Verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disruptful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. In other words, you're also meant to work even harder because your employer is a brother. Your employer is an employee and he or she, has to be the one that stands for integrity in the context of their work environment as well. So they may have to take difficult decisions with regards to how other people lead their businesses. Well, I'm not going to be named amongst them because I'm not the same as them. I might not make as much as them, but I'm not going to cut the corners. So therefore, the employees who are fellow Christians know that and say, you know what, I'll work the next hour this week, but I'm giving it to you. Because I want to see you blessed. Because I know your conduct and I know your service and I know your morality and I know how you do it. Therefore, I'm going to work all the harder because I want God to bless you in the midst of the hardness that you find and the midst of the hardness that I find in the hope that other employers can look and say, that's the biblical model, that's the gospel in action and I want some of that. 
rather than normally being the other way around, where we look at the pagan world and the pagan employees and we say, well, they get away with it, why can't I? He goes to the bathroom and spends 20 minutes in there, why can't I? She goes on a smoke break for half an hour, why can't I? I've been overlooked, I've been this, I've been that. It's all the wrong attitude that Paul's setting forth here. And as well as that, I think it's important for us, we're going to finish in this, I know it's long. Just turn briefly to me to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 11. And this is important for everybody who is in an, an employee, an employer point of view. And it reads, a just balance and scales of the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his. And he's speaking directly here about how people in that day used to cheat people. Used to go in, used to buy a measure of corn, a measure of barley, a measure of wheat, a measure of oil, a measure of whatever it may be. And they would have an unjust scale so that you could see that you're buying 10 pounds of barley, but really you're only buying 8 pounds of barley. And what God's saying is, he's saying, a just balance and scale are the Lord's and all its weights in the bag are his. In other words, you're stealing and you're robbing from him. You're meant to be the representation of him. And this is how you're rep- representing Christ. I know whenever we had the coffee shop here in the back, a person came in who used to lay on the floors and he had this person inside his hand. And I asked him, I didn't know what it was. I said, what's the verse? And he goes, it's a reminder for me every day I go out to work because every day I have the opportunity to have an unjust scale. I do the job. I charge the day for it. I know they're happy to pay a day for it, but I remember it only took me half a day. So I have to say to them, it's not 500 pounds, it's 250 pounds. Because after all, the scales are his. He knows how long it took me. He knows how hard I work. He knows if I sat around listening to the radio for two hours, he knows that I'm taking advantage. That's a hard, hard thing for anybody to measure up to, let's be honest. But yet that is what we're called to as servants of Christ. We are meant to be the representation of Christ in the workforce, for which I believe all of us fall short. Same is true, Proverbs 11, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 20, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests steadfast. I'm sorry, that's not, um, 23. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. The false scales are not good. And that has to do with every single person here who understands that in every work environment, I don't care what it is, there is always opportunity to have an unjust scale, an unjust measure. So that's the attitude we should be encouraged with this morning if we read this passage. And I'll read it again just to close. Let's fly past. Let all who are under a yoke as servants, bond servants, employees, regard their masters, employers, as worthy of all honor. So the name of God and the teaching, which is the gospel, may not be reviled. So that people will know, you hire a Christian, you hire someone who serves diligently no matter what the cause, no matter what the case, no matter what the environment because they are the true representation of the bread of Christ.
We talk about evangelism a lot in, in this church at times. We talk about whether or not we want to go on to the mall or whether or not we want to do different events. That's the best evangelistic tool that we could do as a church. Personal, congregational evangelism where we leave tomorrow and even if we have done things in the past, we change them. And we walk into our workplace tomorrow as a bright, shining example of the gospel in action through the grace and the mercy of God and we live out a life that is a just scale. You may get away with it, but I don't want to. You may do it, but I'm not going to do it. And we do it in a way that is humble and unjudgmental. We do it in a way that is servanthood. We do it in a way that even though you've bought the biscuits for the last month and no one else has bought one and they're eating yours, you buy them again. I know a friend of mine who was a youth pastor at the time and he wanted a way to reach into his um, housing state. He couldn't think of a way that would be practical. He was thinking about whether he should go door to door or invite people to dinner. And the one way that he thought of doing it was at that time, the, the people who lifted the bins, you had to go right the way down, like nearly, I don't know how, how far it was, a number of maybe 100 meters down the road to drop your bins off. And every day he brought every single person's bin back up and left it at their door. Practical example of servanthood. A practical way to get into the community. And that's the goal for each and every one of us. Show the gospel in action. Speak the gospel in action. So that no one can ever say, you're not a Christian. You sit in and you're just as bad as me. You ditch the time clock just as much as I do. You don't have an equal scales just as much as I do. Amen? That's prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, Father, for each and every one of us, Lord, for the hard task that it is, Lord, not to be self-indulgent, Father, not to be given over, Father, to our own flesh and our own justification. We ask, Lord, by the grace and the mercy and the complete empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Father, for there is not one, Lord, not one, you can adhere to that standard without the prevailing work of the Holy Spirit within each and every one of us. Help us, Father, to realize that if we want your church to grow, we are called to preach and to teach the gospel in and out of season. It is the gospel alone that has the power unto salvation. We pray for our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow workers, our fellow family members, and we are also, Father, called to be a living, walking example of Christ. Praise you, Lord, when we fall short, we're covered in grace. Praise you, Father, whenever we do things that we ought not to do, we are still covered in grace, but God, give us an ambition, give us a heart, give us a goal, Father, to have a just scale, to be a true representation of you and serve, Father, as if we're serving you. I thank you, Father, for the number of individuals within the context of this church, Lord, that even have that servanthood. Those who right now are missing this service because they're serving in the crash. Those who serve faithfully, Father, to teach children your word, Father. Those who serve by cleaning this building and washing the toilets, Father. That is not a glamorous, Lord, but you see it all. And I thank you for it. I pray, Father, for the weeks and the days that you have left for us, God, that we can and avail of your grace and your strength and your power of your Holy Spirit to be truly bond servants, Father, of Christ and of the masters here on earth that you have placed us under. We ask this this morning, Father, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
We'll stand, we'll close and worship.